You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia, and author of a new book, Auction Ready, How to Buy Property Even Though You're Scared Shitless. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner and mortgage broker, and together we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp and we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. Happy New Year. Happy New Year. Well, this is our first episode for 2020 and we're going to talk about what we need to be thinking about as we head into what looks to be a pretty challenging year for property buyers. What can we expect in the months ahead? What can we learn from the past? What's noise and what's important? Coming up, we're going to give you some local insights into Melbourne and Brisbane. And of course, I'll cover what we're anticipating in Sydney this year. Looking forward to this episode um, and 2020. But I mean, in the property market per se, there's lots in the macro story that are positive. There's, you know, some potential big risks coming. So there's lots we can talk about on this episode. And the property market, while complex on so many levels, really operates on a fundamental concept, that of supply and demand. Anything that affects the volume of available property and, in turn, the willingness and ability of people to buy this property will have an impact on the market as a whole. So let's discuss supply. Is the lack of stock fact or fiction? I mean, if I the numbers I've looked at... um which I probably just looked at sales, you know, there's always listings. And if you go into suburb level, you can really see that the number of sales over the last couple of years is well, well down on what it was like in the boom. And, you know, whatever suburb you really type into kind of RP data, which I'm using, um, you can really see probably a 50% reduction. So they might've, you know, had a hundred sales, but that suburb's got 60 or 65 um, which is a big difference in terms of the number of sales. Now, whether there's um, more stock versus a year ago, well, probably not. But, you know, I guess what people really want is the stock levels were, that were around in the boom. Well, yes, but they weren't around for the entire boom because I definitely noticed myself when I, say, in 2016, we definitely noticed a very obvious fall in listings then, around about 30% down on the previous year. Mm. And that was something that was pretty consistent across suburbs that I deal in. And of course, that's the inner suburbs of Sydney, inner west, eastern suburbs, and lower North Shore at that time. Mm. Um, so that was that was pretty uniform. That was u- units as well as houses across mm. the board. The following year, 2017, was pretty standard. So it stayed the same. And then, of course, we went into the slowdown where we saw another fall in listings as vendors obviously decided they didn't want to put their properties on the market. So across the board, yes, you're right. I think from that 2015 levels, we were seeing roughly around about 50% of stock. Um, But what also is interesting there is that it takes longer for that stock to sell when this market slows down. So there's not the available, um, the churn is different or the the Mm. pattern is different. Um, And when I look now in a lot of the suburbs that we buy in, and I we, we look at a sort of rolling um, three monthly averages, but 
over 12 month periods, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. So I look at 12 months, the last 12 months, then three months back, the 12 months prior to that, et cetera, mm -hmm. et cetera. If I look back over those five periods, um, this period plus four periods beforehand, very consistent numbers of actual transactions. Mm. So there are the, there is a difference between what's sold and what's listed. But, you know, I think, yes, the new reality is that there's just generally less stock around at all. But, you know, it's not necessarily true that the entire boom was full of lots of stock. Yeah, and I think in the downturn, I mean, you weren't selling unless you were forced to sell. Let's say it was divorce or death or one of those reasons. Or you're a bit of an opportunist and you thought, actually, now's a good time to you know, potentially do the upgrade, which, you know, those people have been rightly proven to, to have been right. Like they're the ones who are probably... Um, really benefited from the downturn, you know. And you they know, they're, 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 they're your contrarians. Yeah. Because that was absolutely perfect conditions for it, but very, very few really took it up in the whole scheme of things. Yeah, and I had, it was a hard year to advise, you know, 2018 and 2019 because we just didn't know where it was going to go, what was going to happen with the election. But, you know, we still had lots of clients buy. And, you know, we were saying, you know, if you are going to go out and buy, obviously just buy quality assets, which there wasn't many, mm. but if they are on the market and they want something, you know, a big price, just throw a lowball offer. And, you know, I can go back to a few clients where those worlds did meet, you know, a lowball offer and a, a motivated seller. Um, you know, one was a, you know, a client going into an aged care home, four kids, you know, whether they got 1.85, they got two. Mm. When they divide it by four, it's not a big difference. Yep. Um, and I mean, that property there, you know, as an example, I'm sure that's up a hell of a lot. Um, and they bought, purchased, you know, from a very motivated seller. So I think, yes, transaction numbers are really low. But, you know, I think, you know, which we'll talk about is until volumes go up, then people aren't going to really want to sell, you know. Yes, so exactly. it's a chicken and egg problem, which we'll discuss. There's also perception of low stock is exacerbated, I think, by a bit of a trend with sales agents to actually put a lot more off-market or a lot more property on the market, off-market if that makes sense, yeah. before they actually run a proper campaign. Um, this is certainly something that we're seeing in Sydney at the moment uh, and as we progress through this episode, we're going to be reflecting on some commentary from uh, some experts based in both Melbourne and Brisbane, so yep. we can flesh this out. And so it's not just in Sydney that this is happening. It's not only a Sydney phenomena. So, um, you know, and look, in my mind, it, typically or traditionally, it was always that you'd have more off markets when the market was slow, when mm. it was a buyer's market, because vendors didn't really want to commit to paying advertising and they didn't want to overexpose their properties, a bit more speculative. And when the market was running hot, they'd be like, I want my day in the sun. I want to go to auction. I want to mm. get maximum competition and maximum price. So it is quite interesting to see that real change in attitude. And I do think that agents are effectively re-educating the marketplace that this is the way to go, which is sort of interesting. I don't know if it's good or bad, to be honest. Well, it's um, funny you say that. I've actually had a few clients recently buy off market, um, not using buyer's agents. And, you know, that's a bit of a – that's because they're in the market – Agents know who they are. Mm. They know they're almost, you know, flashing right, you know, desperate, yes. ready to go. It's a danger. Um, you know, I've, I'm pre-approved. I've been looking, you know, the client agents has it, you know, high on their list of yeah. potential buyers and, um, you know, that's happened. And uh, But it's interesting though. Like I've, I've also seen clients, um, you know, auctions potentially pass in or pass in on quality assets and, mm. you know, client hopefully will buy one today that, you know, I think it's a really good property and it did pass in. I think the uh, agent overpriced it and, um, did the price guide too much. So, yep. you know, we, okay. I still are seeing mixed results, um, which is, you know, that's not giving sellers, you know, 100% confidence because they're also thinking things are going to sell hotter than they actually are sometimes. 
Yeah, and that's interesting. We've seen that on the ground too. I know that uh, I've spoken with a number of agents who've said that pricing is still quite critical, getting it mm. exactly right. And I've certainly seen myself some pretty good property that has been overpriced and it's been sitting around when it shouldn't have been. Mm. Um, and so, yes, it, it is interesting that, you know, if the, the old adage, quote it low, watch it go, quote mm. it high, watch it die, when they get that pricing right from an agent's point of view, there's been some incredibly surprising auction results. And um, and certainly we've seen this uh, phenomena of the, the off market. You know, with some of the people that we've been uh, we've sought commentary from for this episode include Megan Hetherington from Brisbane. We mm. have an episode with her back in episode forty one. For anyone interested in and understanding uh, more about the Brisbane market, but also we talked a lot about first home buyers back then. Um, and she did say there was a noticeable increase in the number of properties selling off market or pre market in the last twelve months. And I think that's also the pre-market, because when I talk to agents as well, I say, you know, they tell me up 20, 30% of what they're selling is off-market. And I always ask for that distinction. Is it a true off-market or is it pre-market? Is this thing going to go to market anyway? And and you're just looking for a really good price from one of those hot buyers. Um, and nearly always they say they're pre-market. Yeah. So, I mean, just for our listeners, if you don't understand the difference there because, you know, what's what in terms of where do you think the real difference between off-market and pre-market lies? Because I think some, you know, listeners might get a bit confused. Yeah, look, a true off-market is a property that doesn't even have photos, doesn't have anything. There's yep. a, The vendor has a real reason for keeping it very, very quiet. And look, sometimes that can be that it's tenanted and they have to wait four months before they can basically, you know, get the tenant out of there and, and refresh the property, et cetera, et cetera. So there's an opportunity, to, an opportunity there because of that. Um, sometimes it is a, a real reason for privacy or desire for privacy. Sometimes it's because the neighbours and they don't get on and they don't want the neighbours knowing. So mm. sometimes it can be a real sinister reason for why it's off market. So, But the other thing from a buyer's perspective, you alluded it to before, when the agent knows that you're hot to trot, and, and particularly if you've just missed out on an auction, you are hot to trot, yep. you know, you've got to be very careful because they know that you're smarting and you're feeling more pain than other buyers potentially, and you might come in and pay way way over the odds. So you've got to be very clear-headed. If you are going to pay a premium for a property, it has to really, really, really suit your needs mm. um, and be very, very clear on that rather than a knee-jerk reaction. And the agents love that. So there's there's off-market that's a good off-market, off-market yeah. that's potentially not great off-market. And then the pre-market is really about, well, you know, often it's an agent tactic to actually get the vendor to sign up with them. Oh, I've got these people on my database. Why don't you sign us up for two weeks? And then they just basically want to get them in the flow and convince them that they're the agent for the job and hopefully sell it because yep. then no other agent gets a look in. Or if one of those buyers doesn't pay the right money, they'll run it to an auction campaign. So it's very much about a sales tactic. And I mean, selling to potential vendors rather than selling to buyers. A mm. uh, bit of a spoiler alert too, because we actually, um, we just talked also just then Chris and I, about the distinction between sales volume and listings volume. Um, it's interesting because next episode is uh, we're speaking to Louis Christopher and he's actually predicting a return to normal listing levels in 2020. But the big question is, what is normal? Yeah, I think, um, Louis, I won't give the ticket away, but he does make some really interesting points around, uh, you know, seeing a stock that's been on the market a long time selling. So I think um, it's a really good insight when he talks about that one. So listen to that. Days on market is what we call it. Yes. <laughs> uh, we also did talk about price discounting with Louis as well because certainly, you know, 
want to talk briefly now about the metrics that do matter. And these are these are metrics that do give us an indication of what's happening in the marketplace. And when you see days on market creep over a month, for instance, then you know you're really getting into slow, markets slowing down. But when they're shorter than 30 days, so the average mm. days on market, and that is how long does it take an average property to sell, um, then you know you're really in a seller's market. And like with, uh, with price discounting, now clearly in an auction environment, you're not really... Um, seeing any data on price discounting because what that is is where they measure an initial asking price and the subsequent or discounts to that asking price and then the subsequent sale price being a lot less than. So those those sorts of things are tracked. And when you see that discounting percentage increasing, then once again, it's a clue as to slowing market. I don't think anybody that we spoke to is suggesting the market's going to slow in 2020. Yeah, I think there's uh, lots of, you know, tailwinds rather than headwinds this year, which is completely different to what we were potentially talking about 12 months ago. Another of the metrics that was very important, uh, certainly in Sydney and Melbourne and to a lesser degree in Brisbane, but is uh, the auction clearance rates. Now, in episode 96, which uh, hopefully you've all listened to and you may or may not have enjoyed, <laughs> that's with Andrew Wilson. Yep. But the first half of that episode is pretty much dedicated to understanding what goes into that metric, auction clearance rates. It's actually really, really informative. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that. Yeah, and I mean, I guess clearance rates have kind of been really strong. There's a lot of argument out there that um, it is off a low number of sales, though, and compared to in the boom. But I would say that in spring, there was still plenty of sales going around and still very high auction clearance rates. And I think the the big learning from that episode, which you know, hopefully some of the listeners picked up on, is that you have to go a lot deeper than a city level. You have to go to a suburb level almost to really see how hot the auction market is in the area that you want to buy. We've had a few episodes last year uh, on the subject of reporting or media and data houses. We interviewed Cameron Kucher from CoreLogic, episode 77, Eliza Owen from Domain, episode 81, and Nerida Connorsby from REA Group in episode 58. And uh, we also interviewed David Johnson, episode 93. He's got a business called Property Planning Australia. And uh, so he's one of the people that we did ask for some comments in terms of what does he think is going to happen in 2020, what's important in 2020. He did uh, report that FOMO back on in Melbourne and Sydney, uh, which, of course, we all know. But I think, interestingly enough, he pointed to some core logic data that suggests that post-September we've had the fastest growth since November 2003. And this is significant because Sydney home price jumped 2.7% in November. It's the greatest single month growth in 31 years. Now that says to me a hell of a lot of pent up demand sitting behind those figures. Yeah. And I mean, it doesn't surprise me. There's a lot of people who have, you know, who always wait for the bottom and they're waiting to get in. And then once they found out that was the bottom in, let's just call it, you know, June or May, after the election, you know, you can start to see they start to get ready and there's a couple of months. And so it doesn't surprise me that there's been very low listings, people who didn't want to sell, and then a lot of buyers who were desperate getting into the market, trying to catch it at the bottom. So another one, uh, another buyer's agent that we asked for some comment, Kate Bacos, if you want to go back and learn a bit more about the Melbourne market from, uh, she talked about Geelong and Ballarat too, actually, that was in episode 23. Kate makes an interesting point and that this data may not tell the full story. And uh, we actually see this too, and she mentions that CoreLogic reports indicate some rapid growth has ensued, but the reality is that we haven't seen all the sales data filter through yet. So there is usually a reporting lag, and we see it on the ground as well. So it'd be interesting to see the January figures when the late spring run actually comes to life. 
Yeah, and I think this is where a lot of um, you've really got to get on the ground, you know, mm. and that's what Kate's talking about here is through her experience she hasn't seen, you know, a lot of what she's seeing on the ground every day and the sales she's seeing yeah. kind of filter through to the results. And I think that's what the problem is when you read mass media yep. um, and you look at these big figures is the lag. And, you know, the lag could be quite costly. If you're talking three to six months and you're thinking, oh, the market's gone up, you know, 6%. Well, actually it could be up 15% mm. as an example or the vice versa. So you've really got to get on the ground because that's the most accurate data is actual real time. And it's true, What you the distinction you draw between macro and micro is really important. If you focus only on macro, you will miss out all the time or you'll overpay when the market slows down. Mm. And, in fact, yesterday I was having a conversation with a client who's dealing directly with a bank, one of the big fours, I won't mention which one. And, you know, this is one of the reasons why I do encourage people to deal with brokers, mm. not directly with banks, because, you know, that person in the bank is a got to advise them based on their bank policy, but also just their bank data, et cetera, et cetera. And he was, he's looking at buying an apartment and this bank representative was telling him that the apartment market is falling in Sydney. <laughs> and I'm, and I'm like, oh, we, we are never going to buy if you listen to this guy and you don't listen to us. Because the problem is that what that guy, who's a bank guy and doesn't know anything about property, is relying on macro data. Yeah. Now, macro data includes all the off-the-plan, new sales, sediment risk, all that stuff mm. is folded in to include established stock. And, of course, we're not looking at buying in anywhere or any type of property that is impacted by the oversupply. And so you've got two lots of... Markets, really, there's lots more than two, but you've got two, you know, macro markets within a bigger macro market, if you like. And, of course, he's just looking at, at, at an aggregation of data and then giving his opinion based on this and advising the client to be careful. Now, yes, we want to be careful, but this client, if they listen to the bank, will not buy. Yeah, I think the apartment market um, does kind of get a bad rap sometimes, you know, because everyone throws all the quality stuff in there with all the, the poor stuff, which does actually sometimes happen um, when you're buying good quality stuff in areas where there's lots of poor stuff. Mm, um, yeah. So even though you've, you know, you've got the best apartment in, in an area where there's lots of high rise, you do start to get lower returns that way. See, even if you bought a quality asset. Hang on, uh, you're talking about returns yield? No, in terms of like even growth, right? you know, because I think that, you know, there's always a competition, there's always other options and that price discrepancy you know, yeah. we get to live in the same area, but whether we live in a top quality property or not so much, you know, the gap just can't get too big because people start to question it. it is, yeah, it's true. It does tend to put a bit of a lid on it. It's interesting though, I was looking at a um, a, a building, a complex, actually quite a large complex, and mm. I'm not going to give the game away because if I do, then everyone will start flooding there. <laughs> um, but it's, it's a complex in an area where there has been a fair amount of new development nearby mm. and there was the first wave of it sort of is wrapped up now. And then the second wave is about to begin. But, you know, this particular complex is around 20 years old now um, and it has held its own. And the reason it's held its own is because it within itself has a number of areas of scarcity. Mm. One is this apartment size. They're significantly larger, say for a two-bedder in this complex, is significantly larger than any of the others being built. Um, and two is the actual facilities and the way it's laid out. You know, for instance, the pools outside in lovely landscape gardens where you can actually imagine yourself using it as opposed to being in a basement, <laughs> which is so common with these buildings. Yeah. Um, three, because it's been around that long, it has attracted, um, it's got its own sort of flavour and community. And 
People want to live there. People want to stay living there. They want to upgrade in there. They want to go from being renters to owners in there. There's there's that sort of attraction um, yeah. about it. But, you know, so there's all those sorts of elements. Now, so that complex has really weathered the storm mm. of of potential oversupply and it's also where it's located. It's in a great location. But it is very interesting and that's the exception to the rule. So generally speaking, though, you're right, it can... It, even a good apartment can get dragged down by the oversupply of new stuff. Yeah, and let's say you don't even buy in those areas where there are, you know, high supply coming and going to continue to come. And you say, for example, buy around the you know, eastern beaches in more community sort of areas or, you know, the lower North Shore or et cetera. Um, you know, these apartments, you know, if you look at how they're going um, and how they're performing, mm. you know, downsizers are absolutely loving them. Um, you know, investors love them because they're a little bit less maintenance and it's a lower purchase price. So um, I don't think this, you know, representative of the bank is really kind of, you know, differing between quality and not quality. And so just be careful when you, you know, these blanket statements get thrown out. They're not really cutting the data very much. Annoying. <laughs> On the other side of the equation is demand, of course. So let's look at what creates demand. Now, firstly, confidence. And that's fed by media, social proof, uncertainty with other other investment options. So if the share market looks to be a bit shaky, then people do tend to look at property as being much more secure. And also in Australia, we have an underlying belief that property is a good investment. Yeah, I think that mental accounting thing um, where we do take our profits from property and we don't go and put it into other asset classes. So if we sell a property and we make, say, for example, a million dollars, we won't go and then put 500 grand into super, 250 into shares and 250 back into property. You know, generally what we do is we take that million and buy another property for 2 million, you know, and this constant reinvesting of properties and constantly only looking at property. Um, it's kind of like a, you know, self-defeat, you know, self, you know, fulfilling prophecy, you know, and then the returns of property come better. And, um, and so, you know, the that national mental, pastime. <laughs> yeah, that mental accounting sort of, um, I've made a million dollars in property. That's been a good investment. I'll keep just doing property and, um, the innovation culture, um, you know, starting businesses, you know, that's one of the th negatives that a lot of people say about the property market. That's not a good use of capital. And I kind of agree, you know, you're only creating more and more asset price growth if you're not creating jobs. And um, you know, that's because of that mental counting issue. It's sort of interesting too that, you know, how quickly it's bounced back. And I think that is because fundamentally we all want to believe in property. I think there's there's that sort of confirmation bias in a way. Yep. But also what I think is rather interesting is we've got this pent-up demand from two years of inactivity. Um, and I actually reckon a lot more than that. So I think that the, the pent-up demand goes all the way back to like 2012, you know? Yeah. And, and are you going to say because, well, potentially, well, definitely from the second half of the boom, because investors overtook owner-occupiers. And so a lot of owner-occupiers just sat on their haunches and said, oh, I can't be bothered trying to compete in here. It's too hard. And they left the market a lot earlier. Yep. And so also the fact is that those investors have not returned in force. So it's sort of interesting in that. That you yeah, say that. so I think I think that you know initially, if you kind of go, you're out there looking, and the, you miss the market, and you could easily miss it if you're a first time buyer because mm. you were thinking about buying a little house in say the inner west, as an example, um, and you had a million dollars to spend, and then bang, it was in 2012. It moved almost, I think it moved, you know, maybe 20 percent in the space of 
six to 12 months, right? So things they, for example, in Annandale. I, I can honestly tell you, I know exactly when it sort of really picked up. We yeah. felt it around November or December and it felt a change. We didn't actually start to really truly see it in action until the beginning of 2013. Mm. Um, but definitely, so 2012 was still easy buying. Yeah. Yeah, this is kind of the back end of that. So I was mm. thinking, you know, um, and I remember it as well because I was actually, you know, looking for a place and uh, watching the market and, um, you know, quite in, say, in Annandale as an example. And, um, yeah, prices moved from, say, 900 to, say, 1112 in the space of, a, you know, a couple of weeks, um, a couple of, you know, so cycles, uh, <laughs> a couple of months. So, I think that was a... <laughs> no, it was. It was, kind of, it was kind of like, you know, we yep. start to see some sales in late and then, bang, it was a few more sales. And I think... Um, if they, you know, people did get priced out and they kind of went, oh, market's going to go mm. softer, then it kept running on them um, and then they just didn't buy. They just kept saving. Mm. Um, then what I think happened a lot of 13, 14 is they just said, well, let's just buy an apartment. And so then they bought an apartment mm. and they, you know, lived in that and then they just never actually got that ability to upgrade. And then I think in 2007, 18, 19, they didn't want to buy. So, you know, that's really a first home buyer that wants a house that missed out, bought an apartment, and then still wants to move from the apartment to the house. And I think a lot of those are out there where they have an apartment, but now they're a bit older, now they've got kids, and now they really want to get into a house mm. on top of the people who just never bought. Yeah. When we spoke to Louis Christopher, who you can tune into next week, he's predicting that investors will return to the market in 2020. And of course, uh, so that will increase demand, but also uh, access to finance. What do you see on that horizon for 2020, Chris? So investors are definitely back. We're getting a lot more inquiry from them. And I think um, it's interesting, Citibank, and this will probably be out of date by the time this launches, but Citibank have a five-year interest-only investor rate at 3.29%. Um, so for five years, you can get a 3.3% interest rate locked in on interest-only. Like... Um, it's like maybe 20 basis points more than what, you know, owner-occupier P&I is. Mm. So it's pretty crazy, like I would say 30 basis points. So it's pretty crazy where investor rates have dropped um, and also interest-only rates. Mm. And so they're the two things that investors look at. And if they can get themselves a decent um, rent for a good property, um, it's almost like, you know, neutrally geared for the next five years. So and we'll talk about that in a minute. <laughs> yeah, a lot of um, you know investors will definitely be coming back because, um, especially if they've got their home sorted. And investors always want to see the market rising before they come back. Which they is just, bizarre. Yeah, it's um, it's counterintuitive, but all the stats are out there. You know, margin lending, for example, in in um, shares mm. is at all time highs when the market's at all time highs. Yeah. So people are gearing up into buy shares at the most when the market's at the highest. Which is the problem. Which is should be it's the all opposite. All the late adopters. The ones that lose the money. Yeah, exactly. It's that kind of real fear of missing out mm. on overdrive. Um, and also I've lost time. I've missed out on this yeah. boom. I need to pick up the pace by borrowing and, and gearing up even more. And, um, yeah, and I think that's what you'll start to see. Mm. Well, David Johnson, he noted uh, that housing credit over the last four months has grown at an annualised rate of 52%. So that that's pretty telling. Um, yeah, so it's definitely, um, you know, all brokers I speak to, you know, housing, um, you know, in terms of their applications, et cetera, all through the roof, um, you know, they've got you know more customers than they can kind of deal with. Um, so that doesn't surprise me at all that, you know, the numbers are flowing through now. Um, and this is one thing, benefits of being a broker is um, we start to see before the market even sees it because they come to us for a pre-approval yeah. before they even start thinking about yep. looking. Um, and, you know, sometimes, for example, a client saw last night, like, 
he's and he's even starting to think about it, and he might not even buy until next year, yeah. you know, late next year. So it's even a year before. Well, he's I ever... guarantee we're actually recording this. What is it? Is today the seventeenth of December? Yes. For release on the sixth of January. Yeah. I'll guarantee he's not buying till next year. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, he's probably not going to be buying till. Maybe he might not even buy till twenty twenty one, but. You know what I mean? It's just yeah. starting that conversation again. I think that, yeah, and I think what you say there is really important that, that mortgage brokers are the lead indicators. You know, it's um, that sort of annualised rate of housing credit, 52%. That's that's massive. That's really, really interesting. Now, Stuart Williams has got a lot to say about all this sort of stuff and, and you can tune in to Stuart when we interviewed him back in episode 39. He's a financial planner and a broker actually based in uh, based in Melbourne, but he also writes regularly for the Australian um and I always love Stuart's take on things. He's given us a prediction on that one. You know, he did say that he expects to see increased competition for interest-only investment lending, which is what you just uh, alluded to there, Chris, uh, regarding mm. Citibank, and that's one example. He's saying that uh, there might be a small window of opportunity to obtain a much better outcome for investors. And so what he says is that that may not last um, these lovely low rates, that his prediction is as follows. If the RBA cuts twice, cuts rates, that is, twice in the first quarter of 2020, he thinks the banks will pass on the full cut to interest-only investment borrowers, but say only 1.5 or 0.15%, yep. 0.15, yep. I should say, um, per cut onto all remaining borrowers. Yep. So if they do that, the current gap between interest-only and P&I, which is 0.29% will close to between nil and 0.1%. Yep. However, at the moment, lenders are pricing aggressively for interest-only investment business. So investors should be aggressive in the first quarter of 2020 and lock in higher discounts, but these discounts may not be as generous after investment rates equalise. So that's an interesting one. I think that's it. He's hang on, Stuart. And I think, um, you know, hats off to Stuart. I think Stuart called the bottom of the market. He of, did. And out of anyone out there. He did. And he called it at a point when uh, no one else was calling it. So um, hats off December, to December, I think it was. In December Lunch, it was. Last year. Um, and, uh, you know, and that was a, a peak pessimist, um, you know, moment. Man, he um, got a hell down for that, didn't he? And, uh, <laughs> you know, and he did well. And I, I hats off to him. But I think his point there around in, lendings um, is bang on. I think that's, uh, you know, the banks are all kind of, all the results kind of came out and they're all losing market share to the second tier, third tier, fourth tier lenders, digital banks. Um, and so they're all doing everything they can. And mm. it's interesting, the ACCC has just said that they're not going to, um, you know, penalise the bank for this loyalty tax. But because the loyalty tax, loyalty tax, which is all old customers paying a lot more than new customers. That's disgusting. Yeah. But it, lots of businesses do it. You go to Optus, you'll do that. Yeah, you know, I know. But I do, actually think it's, I think it's disgusting. I just think it's really poor business to... Not look after your client, your, your existing customers is just, I just think, rotten. Anyway. Yeah, and so what's interesting is this, um, and Stuart's going to make some good points about this, you know, new uh, responsible lending, you know, there might be easier ways to refinance next year without having to go through a full credit process, mm. um, which would be amazing. So this this is what I think. It's already causing a bit of a um, a bank war and, and the pricing we're getting is bigger than we've ever seen. Yeah. And so I think next um, early next year, you know, it's really a good time to be reviewing this stuff, especially – if Stuart's right, and there is a couple of rate cuts, which is probably likely, we could see, you know, variable rates, you know, under 2.5, which would God. just be amazing. And he, he does actually, in his comments to us, which I'll say also we're going to put together a summary document of all the comments that we've uh, asked for from these other experts um, and you can download on theelephantintheroom.com.au, by the way. But uh, one of the other things that Stuart did say was that um, – 
The responsible lending guide released by ASIC on the 9th of December, who had just gone, um, while it's still early days, he suspects the additional guidance will give lenders some comfort to start making exceptions for higher net worth applicants. Uh, as the standard ratios and matrices, matrices, is that how you say it, don't always make sense when applied to their situations. But he's suggesting that a return to standard mum and dad applications. So, um, It's yeah. interesting one. I agree with Stuart. I think there's, um, you know, a lot of the high net worth, a lot of the banks have been very nervous, you know, for the last few years. We haven't really seen any problems getting loans approved this year compared to, say, 2018, where it was getting to clients for no reasons, really. Um, but this new guide... Um, is kind of also on the back end because there's also uh, open banking, which is just starting to come mm. through and comprehensive credit reporting, which is kind of also potentially making lending harder if you haven't got, you know, your ducks lined up. If you have got any problems with credit or you've, you know, maybe got too many credit cards or, you know, got a car lease, all these sort of things are starting to become um, more of a focus for the bank. So, um, and also your day-to-day -day living expenses, we could see a return to um, you know, forensically looking through them. Um, and that's probably a big thing that's kind of an unknown in 2020 and something I'm going to watch closely is ASIC and Westpac had a fight this year and ASIC won. Mm -hmm. um, uh, no, no, Westpac won, sorry, and uh, ASIC decided to appeal. And I'm pretty sure it's around the 25th of Feb, um, ASIC and Westpac's appeal, um, which is all around responsible lending and what the banks should be doing to verify someone's living expenses. Um, that's all going to come to light. So we're not sure how that's going to go yet. And mm. so that is to me, one of the biggest risks next year, if ASIC do win and we go back to forensically looking at living expenses. So demand will shrink. Yep. So the elephant in the room is 100% for you. The reason that Chris and I do this podcast is because we passionately believe that property buyers can do it better. We really want to help all of you understand all the risks, but also the ways in which you can avoid your elephant making the decisions. But what we would love for you to do is just to share this episode and share other episodes with people around you that are going through the property process. Give us a review on iTunes. A five star, please, would be very appreciated because this is about making sure that we all benefit from the wonderful information that our guests have been sharing with us. So there's been quite a lot of talk about the home loan deposit scheme. So that is uh, that was Scott Morrison's election pitch to first home buyers, um, which will come into effect on January one. Now, of course, we won't know for certain how this will impact the mar market until it does come into effect. But one thing I've observed in the past with first home buyer incentives is that they are very successful at driving up prices. Uh, Brisbane buyers agent Melinda Jennison, uh, who we haven't interviewed, but I did ask for some of her comments. She sort of came back to us and and said that um, in Brisbane, only properties valued up to 475000 will be eligible. This will mo most likely push any of those buyers into an, a local government area outside of the Brisbane City Shire. And I think in Brisbane that's quite important because it's the Brisbane City Shire that really is the safest place to invest. Uh, if they're considering a house on a block of land, alternatively, it will enable a purchase in an inner city ring or inner city suburb if you're buying an apartment or a townhouse, but once again, there's been an oversupply in that area. So it's a bit of a worry to think that, you know, particularly in Brisbane, that first home buyers could be encouraged to be buying into the more risky areas through this uh, through this scheme. 
She's saying that she's, unli- she's unsure if they're likely to see any significant change in the demand for property as a result of it, given that it's limited to 10,000 borrowers. But I guess we'll wait and see. Melbourne buyer's agent, Jared McCabe, who we interviewed episode 42, he expects there to be an impact in the sub $600,000 market, um, which will push up demand in the first quarter. And he thinks maybe that could follow through in the year. You, he also thinks there'll be reasonable stock levels come February. So um, Bendel's beginning more confident bringing more stock into the market, which probably, you know, may equalise that. Who knows? But I guess nobody knows what's what it's going to do because it is at the bottom end of the market. Yeah, I think um, it's interesting. I've been quite negative on this policy and I still don't think it's great. Um, I think what why, uh, you know, it's same as George Bush back in 2003 in the US, he kind of said, you know, every American should own a first home. And um, they went on this huge home building sort of um, construction boom in America and everyone was getting finance and that ended up leading to the GFC. So um, the government's love to kind of come on in and then, you know, throw the support behind the first home buyer and do things to help them um, because it's so much money in construction, especially when they buy a new property like house and land packages, which they're hoping a lot of them will buy. Um, but I think what this is really doing is saying to first home buyers, maybe you should consider buying property. It's a mindset shift. And if they don't get the 10,000, maybe they can still do it. Maybe they just need a 10% deposit and maybe they ask their parents some money. Mm. And so even if you get declined on the, you know, getting the 5% deposit, maybe you still enter the market. And I think this is what they're trying to do is just kind of bring forward future demand and say to first home buyers, if you're thinking about getting in the market, now here's an opportunity for you. So I actually think it's going to be much bigger than probably the 10,000 um, just because of that mindset shift. You mean in terms of the amount of people that it motivates into the market? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So let's talk about the cyclical nature of the market, um, specifically seasonality, because, you know, in Sydney, a typical year would run like this. Um, you come in January and because we uh, have a lot of property that goes to auction, um, those new listings aren't going to really properly hit the market until after Australia Day weekend. And then... You've got pent-up demand from buyers, those that missed out the end of 2019 uh, and then new ones entering the market because, let's face it, after Christmas when everyone's had time to relax and think about what they want in a year, it's incredible how many people hit the property market at that time of year. Agents, and certainly as a sales agent, I used to get called in for a lot more appraisals at that time because people start to really seriously think about what they're going to do. As a buyer's agent, my inquiry goes up at that time of year. You know, we've interv- uh, you know when we called out for comments from the buyer's agents up and down the coast, Jared McCabe is expecting the same thing to happen in Melbourne. Um, Scott McGeever, another buyer's agent from Brisbane, same deal. They've both said the same thing that we're experiencing in Sydney in that there's been not the level of spring stock coming in the market as normal. And so therefore you've got A, less stock and B, more buyers that haven't been able to buy. And so that's what fuels a busy January, February. And so in February, typically clearance rates are the highest that they are in, in the rest of the year in any other month. That's typically... Um, and that's because of that. It's because the ratio of buyers to sellers in February is it is, is at its greatest. Um, that sort of continues, it gets up to Easter and then what it gets a little, it gets a, a fuel injection because, of course, people don't want to list their property to have it running, a campaign running over the Easter period. And so it might peter out if there wasn't Easter, 
but it sort of never does because that that drives a lack of stock again. And so often what happens then, it just sort of ramps up until it gets to around May and it keeps busy, busy, busy. What happens in May is that often you start to see more property. So the property sort of numbers does or listings numbers do tend to start swelling a bit at May. You've also got that typical idea about buyers going, oh, a bit of buyer fatigue, a bit of thinking, oh, it's getting cold. I can't be bothered now. Maybe not in Brisbane, certainly in uh, Sydney and Melbourne that happens. And then a lot of owners start to say, oh, well, I don't want to sell my property in winter because it doesn't look so good, not enough natural light, the garden's looking fantastic. And so, and that's probably exacerbated a little bit more so in Melbourne than Sydney, but it certainly is part of the seasonality of the market. So you will see a low stock levels again. And yeah. then that gets fueled, <laughs> that fuels the market. And then when you get into spring, we typically see a lot of property come on, usually mm. at the very end of September is when it starts. Lots of volume comes in, buyers get buyer fatigue, sit on their hands, usually clearance rates taper off till the end of the year. Now, this year has been an exception because there just hasn't been the stock and there has mm. been lots of demand. So I think May is going to be a big uh, moment. Um, obviously, the this, this you know federal government's trying to make a surplus and you know it looks like they're probably going to do it, You know, barring kind of any... Kind of shock to iron ore price, probably. Um, so, if you know we get to May next year, are they going to probably? And if RBA has cut a few times, are they going to bring forward tax cuts? Um, are they going to go on a bit of an infrastructure spending spree? Um, you know, there's lots of things that could happen in that budget next year, which you know is going to try to keep the economy going. Because you know, while we've got this rising asset prices, you know, there is still kind of rising unemployment. You know, growth isn't really there. You know, we haven't got inflation, productivity. So there's lots of concerns on the macro kind of economy level, but then back down, people are still going out and buying property and pushing prices up. Yeah, and it's sort of interesting too, because spring hasn't produced the stock we usually get, you know, that has resulted in much stronger auction clearance rates, which once again are a really good marker of what's happening on the ground. You know, in Sydney, they've hit 80% a couple of times, and that's been almost unheard of in November. Mm. Um, Kate Bacos reported similar out-of-cycle activity in Melbourne. So basically even late December, run-at auctions has pulled some dramatic record results. Um, and in Brisbane, you know, you'd never expect to see such high, high clearance rates, but um, Melinda Jennison actually noted that she's been to a couple of auctions where there's been 19 and 21 registered bidders in two locations, one south side and one north side, Now in November. Now, 19 and 21 registered bidders, that is what we were recording in Sydney at the absolute height of the boom, and that's nuts. That's when it's take a ticket, people lining up to register. And this is in Brisbane, and it's interesting. Like, it's not Sydney, Melbourne. I know we, we do have a lot, probably a bias towards understanding those two markets because they are the biggest, but in terms of um, Brisbane, you know, there are parts of Brisbane that are performing very well over the last few years. Um, and then you throw in low rates and, um, you know, the economy potentially and, and people have got jobs and they're starting to bid and you're starting to see these, these big numbers. One thing I think is part of that as well is expats. So, um, you know, I've seen a big increase of, uh, expats living in Australia, you know, so people from say, for example, overseas, they're kind of entering the market a lot um, because of the dollar and they can bring money overseas. For example, the pound's really strong at the moment and the euro and things like that. So, so, money coming from Hong Kong too due to, that, due to that uncertainty over there, political I th- uncertainty. I think exactly right. So we're getting lots of inquiries from people in Hong Kong and Singapore and a few other pockets as well because they're like, oh, you know what, I'm thinking about moving home. The dollar's not that strong. I can, I'm you know, maybe going to come home in three, five years or even now and a lot of those expat investors are trying to get money. And to be honest, there's not many banks that are willing to give them that much. 
um, compared to they were. But I do think the expats are, are definitely starting to make a big impact on the market. So I think in terms of what's impacting supply and then what will lead people to sell, obviously all that positivity around clearance rates and prices rising and the reported data from CoreLogic, et cetera, et cetera, um, you know, that, you know, a, a lot of the people commenting, um, you know, Stuart Williams basically said he could see the discretionary vendor is someone that would be planning, has been planning to sell but hasn't had to sell. And, you know, he's predicting a lot of those coming into the market early 2020. And, you know, because his advice to his clients that are discretionary vendors has been throughout the slow town, don't sell if you don't have to. And, of course, anyone with half a brain, you know, unless they actually had to or had a purpose or was upgrading or actually had a specific reason for selling, you know, particularly was holding, sitting on their hands. So, you know, this will encourage them to list their properties. And I wonder if the, um, you know, we do start to see the building issues, I think, are just going to continue on next year. I think the... Uh, phoenixing is now in the papers, the certification. Well, we haven't even talked about construction starts, yeah. Yeah, and mm. I think the a lot of investors and a lot of uh, people who own units and apartments that have seen potentially reasonable falls in the downturn, um, if there's any type of price rise and they can now get out uh, <laughs> and they're concerned about it. Um, so we could just see a massive flood of people trying to get out of these apartments if there's any type of more of a stronger demand there. So uh, um, I do think that's going to be a bit of a trend where – we're going to start to get out of these buildings. Yeah, and it's interesting because, um, you know, one of the big questions is when it's known that there's a, lo- a lack of stock and it's hard for people to buy, another reason that vendors hold off from selling, as Kate Bacos pointed this out, but we certainly see too, is that where were they going to move to? Yep. You know, so, but but if you're in a loss-making or you've had a loss-making asset and you see an opportunity to bail, you might not be too worried about that. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's the investors and that's, um, you know, if that can be replaced with a home buyer, then, mm. you know, that is um, more demand and they, they're, they're only, and that's potentially not great for, for renters, you know, more home buyers kind of coming into the market. I think that's where the 5% deposit thing, I didn't say that, but, you know, if, if they buy off someone, that some person's, someone's going to do something with their money. So if they go buy a house or apartment for 600, they're going to then take their money and then go back into the market most likely. And so that's where you get all these flow on effects why it's so important for more demand to come in um, to keep prices rising. Well, it's interesting you say that because Megan Hetherington actually gave some insight into where the buyers are coming from in Brisbane and she did say that property managers have reported 2019 as being the year of the break lease with tenants buying homes and ending their leases early. So this is an indication that many long-term renters are actively leaving the rental market in higher numbers than previous years. And this demand coupled with the steady flow of southerners chasing warmer weather and more modest property prices has put some upward pressure on prices. So that's sort of interesting to see that happening up there as well. And I think that's why you're seeing a lot of rents not rise because a lot of people are saying, well, I'm, I'll, I want to keep my rent low because I do want to buy in the next few years. And I've got that hope there. So let's keep, you know, rent whether a new apartment because it's cheap or let's not allow them to put our rent up. We'll, you know, say we're going to go somewhere else. And then you add in lots more stock and things like that. And, um, and then people breaking leases and things like that. So you can see why rents have really been struggling across, you know, Sydney, Melbourne. Although the rents is a lot about supply, new supply. And in fact, David Johnson actually pointed out something interesting. He said that the, obviously a significant, we've had oversupply of apartments, which is 
been one of the big factors in terms of keeping a lid on rents. But he said a significant undersupply of new dwelling approvals, will, which will put more pressure on values due to the lack of supply. And Dr Guy DeBell, Deputy Governor from the RBA, suggests that 2020 will be the year that supply actually bottoms out. But he also mentioned that lending to developers will begin to free up and to increase supply. So the RBA has commented lack of credit in this space uh, probably has had great impact on the negative supply of property. No, I guess no surprises there, and therefore property value increases than the restrictions of lending to consumers for residential mortgages. So I guess that's unlikely to have an impact on the 2020 market, though. Yeah, I think there's a, you know, there will be, uh, you know, a lot more quality properties and more uh, kind of apartments coming on the market and also greenfields and housing land packages. Um, You know, the developers, if they got any kind of sniff of being able to sell them, um, and I can already see that there's one development, for example, in Surrey Hills that it kind of always going to hit the market and then it just got canned and now it's back on the market and it's, it's quite a you know big development there at Nick Cleveland street. And so they delayed listing it. They could have been selling this a year ago, mm. but now they're like, let's go for it now. Um, and so you'll start to see these people that have, you know, maybe canned it or put it to the back drawer. Um, now they're starting to, to list these. So we're going to see a lot more construction come, but that's not without the next couple of years where we're going to see a big decline in the amount of residential construction. But if you look on the commercial side, the Sydney CBD, there's no end in that. And I think we'll be talking about still new developments happening there in a few years because there's such a big pipeline of new towers going. So we also had a bit of an interesting observation from Pete Wargent. Now, Pete, uh, back in episode 24, we interviewed Pete. He's a, a an interesting guy. He's um, he's an f- accountant. He's a buyer's agent. I think he's a financial planner too, isn't he? But he's got a, a great daily blog, which just is an amazing minefield of data and, and slices and dices that data and comes up with some very interesting uh, observations and correlations. But um he made a very interesting point about where demand could come from in Brisbane because he said that Brisbane is now in the highly unusual situation for a capital city of having what we used to call in the old money a reverse yield gap. In these days, we call it positive cash flow. With mortgage rates coming down from interest-only loans and yields of 4% to 5% being easily achievable, so basically rents have started rising in Brisbane, he's saying, it's not too hard to find property investments which pay for themselves immediately. And we think this is set to drive a good deal of investor interest. So once again, we're not recommending necessarily you go chasing yield, but it's interesting to see that that's probably where they'll see some increase in buyer demand in Brisbane. Yeah, I think um, cash flow is really important for people who are buying an investment property. They, you know, even if they're really on top of their mortgage, they've got the equity, they can afford it. Um, you know, really, it does come down to that cash flow and really being comfortable with that. And the biggest thing that drives that is is interest rates. So going back to my point around five-year fixed rates at, you know, low threes percents, that gives them the confidence that cash flow is going to be X over the next, you know, five years. So without doubt, if we start to see, um, you know, markets, for example, like Brisbane, you know, you are almost positively cash flow, but on quality assets, not on, you know, uh, high-yielding, risky assets like rural or, you know, duplexes in the outer suburbs and these things that potentially have been positively cash flow due to things like depreciation in the past. Or um, rental guarantees. Hmm. Yeah. Um, he did actually also note that the rental supply is now noticeably tightening and the council has further moved, we're talking Brisbane City Council here, has further moved to block medium density development going forward. Now, that's an interesting one. Hadn't known that. Um, yeah, I mean, that happened in somewhere mm. like Ride. You know, they were just mm. building way too fast and, they, you know, the, the suburb can't keep up. But, you know, if there's any ability for the councils to, you know, loosen the strings and encourage construction, you know, 
most of the time they're going to do it unless they're in a really strong NIMBY um, suburb that's really fights it. Well, yeah. So another thing that Pete raised uh, is that it's been a challenging time for landlords from a tenancy perspective and prospective rental reforms could shift the balance of power towards tenants. And this is an interesting thing for 2020 because I was talking to Janet Spencer. She's a buyer's agent in Melbourne and she was talking about the rental reforms coming in Victoria uh, or tenancy reforms, I should say, coming in the middle of this year. And one in particular was sort of interesting and that is that the the no cause, you know, forgive me if I get the terminology yep. wrong, but the no cause termination. So basically you can terminate somebody if uh, – there, if you get sell the property, um, assuming they're outside of a lease, you can yep. terminate somebody, a tenant that is, if um, I think if you go to tribunal and they've broken all the rules. But in terms of, well, if I'm an owner and I rented my house out while I moved overseas and then I moved back, what if I can't evict my tenant when I want to move back into my own home? Or if I have a tenant who is, you know, if I want to move the tenant out because I actually want to put a new kitchen and actually upgrade the property. Yeah. I won't be able to do that. You know, there's actually quite a few restrictions coming for landlords and and Queensland buyers agents, Megan Hetherington mentioned this as well, certainly Pete just then, um, that, you know, the reforms coming will be interesting in terms of what they do to the sentiment of potential investors or maybe investors wanting to sell out. I think this is why it's so important to, you know, a lot of clients will say, oh, um, I want to buy a property, but, you know, the, the issues around the cash flow and I think, well, the most important, issue around your cash flow is getting rent and getting keeping a tenant and not having any massive gaps between um, tenants or taking three months to lease it. And a lot of clients, you know, I've seen in the past, I've gone and bought, you know, poorer quality assets and generally poorer assets generally have bigger problems with getting tenants and keeping tenants and keeping uh, and, and rent increases. So I think what this really means, if you are buying quality assets, it's not finished now though. Now you've got to pick a quality tenant because if they are in there and they want to stay and they do the things right, um, you know, it might not keep the property how you want to be kept, you know, um, or they potentially are late on rent here and there that might frustrate you or, you know, they won't allow access for things. There's things that those tenants might do that upset you and damage the property. Mm. Um, you might find it really hard to kick them out if they know the rules, um, which I've, uh, I know from personal experience um, with some lawyers or tenant on one of our properties. <laughs> So there certainly seems to be a consensus generally that the beginning of 2020 will be strong, but that could peter out as new stock comes onto the market. Um, but as, and of course, we know the power of the regulators, as uh, David Johnson puts it, you know, he says that uh, government and the regulators will feel the ever increasing heat due to cost of the properties and the level of consumer mortgage debt and affordability issues. So we should also keep a lookout because in particular APRA, would be expected to step back into the fray at some point to make it harder for consumers to borrow if it all seems to be getting out of hand. Um, so, you know, I think that's what we need to sort of be aware of, that, you know, if the increased supply doesn't sort of do the job um, of settling the market down, then the regulators, regulators may well start playing with the levers again. David also, he, he actually sent a couple of things which I loved. One was his elephant in the room. Do you love that? Uh, two elephants in the room, David suggested. One is, uh, will the economy remain sluggish and the RBA be required to drop rates again, which will significantly curtail any measures from APRA, or will Australians start to spend because of the wealth effect? 
which is what we get when our property values go up. We all feel like we've got more money and uh, therefore we get out there and, and play around and spend more on in retail and buy white goods and renovate and all the rest of it. And will more developers get money and the government throw cash at infrastructure, meaning that there will be more construction-based jobs, making it more likely that we see wage growth. So there are just a couple of elephants in the room and questions that Dave's putting out there. Yeah, so you've got tax cuts. You know, do they bring them forward? Do we get more of a price um, war with the banks to create more money in our cash flow because our mortgages are cheaper? Um, do we then spend that money and, you know, increase retail spending and things like that because um, our property prices are going up? So they're big unknowns. I think the good thing with a global economy, though, it's, you know, we've got Brexit potentially sorted now, um, trade deal potentially sorted now between China. Um, you know, there potentially is more certainty, but um, I'm always a bit uncertain when it's like that because generally there's more uncertainty around the corner. So a number of these experts that we called in here to give their opinions, they were brave enough to give some predictions. David Easterbrook, he's a buyer's agent from Melbourne who we interviewed in episode 90. He's come out and said the owner-occupiers will continue to dictate the house purchases for those with the budgets to do so. However, many owner-occupiers not willing to sacrifice their location too much will start to see value in townhouses. So he's saying this is a cultural shift that's been a long time coming and it is interesting because townhouses are like houses but they're strata, so they've got backyards, they've, mm. they're generally street fronting and all the rest of it. I do love the fact that he's, he's, he's given a big, a big warning here. He says, but be aware of the imposter townhouses which are built from substandard materials and some substandard levels of quality and, and materials such as hebel, foam and blueboard. Um so he's got a little rant here. I'll put the whole rant in that document that we've uh, said that we'll have, which is a summary of all of these uh, comments from these experts. And uh, you can get that on the elephantinthemroom.com.au. Yeah, I think the uh, you're right. Like if houses all become too expensive, then people shift to other assets like townhouses and apartments. Um, and I think this is the conversations I will probably having. I can already start to see them um, is once people start to lose hope and living in the areas they want to live, they're not going to, potentially give up, you know, they're going to want to keep living in those areas. And the rent vesting strategy, which was kind of all the rage a few years ago, is going to start popping up again, where people say, stuff it, I'm just going to rent where I want to live and invest elsewhere. Um, people moving out of Sydney, for example, Central Coast, north of Wollongong, that's going to start kicking off again. I can already Blue see mountains. it. Um, and then, and Blue Mountains, Bowerall, Geelong, yep. um, et cetera. Ballarat. Yep. Um, but I think also um, even moving to Brisbane, you know, we, we, I was seeing yes. lots of clients <laughs> say, um, I'm going to move to Brisbane because of house affordability. And so I think that's going to be a big conversation is that whole housing affordability debate, which has gone quiet for the last two years, is really going to start kicking off at the end of next year. Um, and there's also obviously a lot of people who are marginalised with property, like homelessness, that's obviously going to get worse. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, massive problems with the property market on a social level that um, will start becoming more uh, bigger conversations next year. So let's, let's hit with some more of these predictions. Pete Wargent says, Brisbane hasn't seen wild swings in prices up or down in recent years but has experienced solid rises in land values close to the city. Expect to see more of the same in 2020, supported by relative affordability, and I think that feeds into all you were just saying there about uh, migration really as well, driving those prices up. Megan Hetherington also uh, from Brisbane says, the number of listings on property portals has remained fairly consistent over the last six months. And her, her conversations with agents indicates there is not going to be the traditional flush of properties in the new year, but rather a trickle of fresh listings late January. Well, that will continue to put pressure on prices. Scott McGeever from Brisbane as well says 
Here you can see that houses in the sub $800,000 price bracket will be very strong. Heading over to uh, Melbourne, you've got Jared McCabe saying that he's certainly thinking that things will continue to be fairly strong going to the new year. He's actually putting some figures on this brave man. He's expecting, well, we might put him in the uh, fill the forecaster report 2021. Here we mm. go. He's expecting market prices to rise on average probably between 8 and 10% over the calendar year. He certainly wouldn't be surprised if blue chip assets rise in value by even up to 15. Kate Bacos, he, she's saying very similar. She's basically doesn't foresee Melbourne's property market dipping again in 2020 unless something significant either on the global scale or policy, policy level is initiated. And David Easterbrook's giving quite a specific uh, prediction, saying younger buyers will start to see a value in apartments in the premium locations such as Elwood, St Kilda, Hawthorne, South Yarra. And I know that... Uh, Stuart Weems and also Jared McCabe have said this too at different times, uh, just based on what I've read and, and listened to of theirs. He, but uh, David's saying that he thinks prices will jump five to ten percent in the for the first time in almost a decade, uh, as downsizers, young buyers want location and starting to see the value in these sorts of properties. Yeah, it's funny he says that around apartments in Melbourne. You know, like they haven't really risen much in a decade, and that's um, you know. But these are the type of apartments that people want to buy if they can't afford to buy a house. So as house prices get too expensive, they have to shift into other things and they're actually competing with downsizers. And this is one of the things that's going to start happening in 2020. If you were a downsizer, what would you have done during the downturn? Um, you would have delayed selling your house and you would only sell your house when you can get a good price. So they're going to start entering the market to sell because the, and they're going to have more cash because they're going to sell out of a house for True. a bigger price. Now but they go- have a very short runway in terms of how whether they can borrow money and, you know, so the first-hand buyers, yes, I know that, but first-hand buyers can in some cases have more flexibility than a downsizer depending on how close to retirement they are. Yeah, and I guess depending on what the means are of that downsizer. But, mm. you know, if they are selling out of a house uh, and they're getting a bit of a, a decent price because it went pretty hot at auction uh, and they're downsizing into something else, they're more likely to go and um, have that same confidence when they enter the market on something else and overpay if they've also got a good price. Um, Only if they've got the cash. Yeah. I, I'm just trying to encourage first-home buyers that not all downsizers are competitors for them. Yeah, I think, but I, I think though if you have just um, entered the market and you're pretty desperate now because you don't want to be out of house, that, yeah, you know. Uh, that does drive it a bit, yes. Yeah, I don't want to wear rent for a couple of years in my 60s or 70s. I want to get straight back into the market. Um, I do think it's going to be a bit of a problem together with investors entering the market. And so first-time buyers have had it pretty good. I would say they're going to have a few more competitors next year. Now, David Johnson also gives some insights outside of Brisbane, Sydney and Melbourne, which is what we've been focusing on here. He does say that he can see value growth in Adelaide and Perth at solid rates, but not at the same rate of knots uh, as certainly you know, definitely Sydney and Melbourne. Um, also, he said Canberra will be more subdued given the public service shakeup and Hobart will be more restricted due to recent high growth rates. He's saying the market will recover its full correction by mid-year, if not sooner, and we will be hitting new highs in the second half of the year. But the rate of growth will be slowing by the end of the year. And of course, going back to his earlier comments about, well, that's assuming that there's no intervention by regulators uh, in the middle of the year. Yeah, like every year, though, at some point there's always the biggest risk with a global crisis. And I think that's, um, you know, we can always, you know, we thought that would be last year. We thought it would be next year. We And there's always a risk of a global crisis. And so that's always the caveat that we always don't know. Well, that's exactly right. So also we're always very careful to be forecasting or predicting. And don't mm. forget you can actually access 
uh, our annual fool or forecaster report. So which experts can you trust to get it right? So there's a lot of danger in forecasting and sticking your neck out there. And uh, we release this every April Fool's Day. Our April Fool's Day from 2019 is there on the website, theelephantintheroom.com.au for you to download. Uh, we will be obviously releasing a new one in 2020. So keep an eye out for that one. You can also access the transcript for this episode on the website and... You can read more from these experts by downloading all of their comments that they sent to us. Check the website for the link. Thanks for joining in. And uh, Veronica and I are actually going to catch up for lunch now to talk about what's in store for 2020 as well. Uh, I'd love to hear your feedback. Any guests that you're keen for us to get on, we're making a bit of a hit list. So uh, any feedback or any ideas, send them through. And finally, Happy New Year. And I wish you all an amazing 2020. Absolutely. Join us for our next episode when we interview Louis Christopher. Louis is one of Australia's best known and very well respected property analysts. Now, he actually gives us a very personal story as to why he got into the business that he's in. And I encourage you to listen for that one. Louis shares his assumptions for the 2020 property market. So these are the assumptions that he has used and he's based his forecasts on. He talks about the various scenarios that he's played out in terms of his forecasting models. Big question, is there an end game to all of this? So we definitely encourage you to tune in. I have to say it was a very, very enlightening. He absolutely dug deep and had a very deep conversation around property data, what's driving it, what's underlying it, what's happening, how we interpret this stuff. Yeah, it's well worth listening to this episode. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room property podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.